Welcome to Small World Big Problems, a podcast from the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. My name is Connor Crago, and today I will be interviewing Professor Sergei Radchenko on Sino-Russian relations and China's stake in the Ukraine conflict. China and Russia have had a long relationship full of ups and downs. During the Cold War, China and the Soviet Union went from a full military alliance to sworn enemies in the matter of a few years. Towards the end of the Soviet Union, and in the post-USSR Russian Federation, China and Russia have improved relations. But their relationship falls short of a full alliance like Western nations and NATO. Why is this? How does China perceive the Russian invasion of Ukraine? What does China seek to gain from the invasion? In this episode, we will discuss the answers to these questions with Professor Sergei Radchenko, who has written extensively on the Cold War, nuclear history, and on Russian and Chinese policy. Professor Sergei Radchenko is the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Previously, Professor Radchenko was a Global Fellow and Public Policy Fellow at the Wilson Center and the Zi Jiang Distinguished Professor at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Professor Redchenko's books include Two Suns in the Heavens, The Sino-Soviet Struggle for Supremacy, and Unwanted Visionaries, The Soviet Failure in Asia. In May 2024, his newest book will be released, titled To Run the World, The Kremlin's Cold War Bid for Global Power. We hope you enjoy this episode of Small World, Big Problems. Professor Redchenko, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me. So to start off our episode, could you give our audience an overview of Sino-Russian relations up to the start of Russia's military invasion of Ukraine? And how has the invasion changed that relationship? Uh, so uh, how much time do we have? A couple of days? <laughs> <laughs> I can go I can go for I can go back centuries Sino-Russian relations have deep roots those are two empires that interacted since the 17th century and their relationship has not always been very pleasant there was time deep in the past where Russia was on the receiving end of China's military might but then in the 19th century Russia became the empire that was really squeezing China and taking China's territory uh, or the territory of the Qing Empire uh, so <clears throat> that was you know that's that's very briefly so to speak the first three centuries or so of Sino-Russian interactions. But then the story in the 20th century became even more complicated because eventually Moscow became invested with the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, was a was effectively the co-founder of the Chinese Communist Party. And then the relationship between Moscow and Beijing in the 1950s became very close. They were, in fact, military allies for a time, but frictions developed between them towards the end of that decade, towards the end of the 1950s. And as we move into the 1960s, those frictions give way to real, mean, brutal confrontation leading uh, to 1969, actual military clashes along their border in the Russian Far East or in the Chinese Northeast, and then a further decade of a 
frozen, bitter relationship between these two countries. Now, in the 1980s, the relationship started to unfreeze, started to improve. By 1989, Russia and, or at that time, still the Soviet Union and China normalized their relationship or in the words of then Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping, closed the past and opened the future. And in the 1990s and 2000s, the relationships basically developed in a very positive direction. Here, we're talking not just about the political relationship, which went from strength to strength, but also the economic relationship that became deeper and deeper with time and in recent years has really intensified in various ways. So that is that is important to understand. I think it's important to understand that the Sino-Russian relationship is something that spans centuries, that those are two countries that have had in their relationship periods of confrontation, uh, almost, you know, enmity on the border of, on the verge of war, but also uh, have had the long periods of peaceful coexistence. And of course, in more recent uh, years, they have been on a very positive trajectory, especially under Putin and Xi Jinping, which is something maybe we can talk about. The invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, I won't say it really changed the relationship profoundly. It just became... I would say maybe turning point. Well, it's not even, yeah, it's, it's turning point. Is that the right word for this? It's just something that kind of reinforced the pre existing trend already. I mean, the relationship has been getting closer for a variety of reasons. Well, let's talk about those reasons. First of all, the economic side of the relationship. China and Russia are mutually complementary in economic terms. They're not rivals in practically any economic sense. And Russia exports natural resources to China, oil, also gas. That's basically the majority of Russian exports to China. China provides Russia with much needed consumer goods, increasingly recently technologies that Russia is lacking. And so this relation has been developing it's been developing since Mikhail Gorbachev visited Beijing in 1989. So it's been really positive dynamic for the last 30 years and more. And that even became even stronger with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Why is that? Because once Russia invaded Ukraine, the West imposed crippling economic sanctions on Russia. And, the, and, and where does Russia have to turn at this point? Of course, to China, not only to China, but generally mainly to China, because China is then able to provide Russia with a market to redirect some of the oil, for example, that Russia is no longer able to sell in Europe. Russia has been trying to redirect its gas as well, but unfortunately that is much more difficult for Russia, or maybe fortunately, depends on your point of view, I suppose. Uh, from Putin's point of view, it's very unfortunate that he's not able to sell that gas to, to, to China that really is desperate to uh, sell. But also China has been able to supply Russia with um, technologies that Russia is denied in the West, etc. So the economic relationship, while it has been strengthening, it's been going from strength to strength and has been improving over or becoming deeper over the years has really strengthened and has now exceeded $200 billion per year with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, uh, what does that mean? That means that China for Russia, which has long been a number one trading partner, has now really become larger than life. It's gigantic in terms of its economic importance for Russia. Something like 25% of Russian foreign trade is currently with China. Russia for China is not on the same order of importance because China's main trading partners are still 
the United States, the European Union, Southeast Asia, and so on. But uh, Russia is still raising an important, rising in importance. So the economic angle is this, right? So the economic relationship has been strengthening. They are not really in conflict much anywhere. It is a relationship that benefits both sides. And the war in Ukraine, it has not really changed that. It just strengthened this dynamic. So that's the economic side. Now let's talk about the political side. On the political side, China and Russia have been closing ranks. Some have questioned what this closing of ranks actually represents. So, for example, is that an ideological alignment between them? You know, is that an alliance of some kind that they're having? An alliance or an alignment? Those are two different words that have been used to describe this. I would I, I would argue that, of course, it's not an alliance. By the way, it's an alignment, not an alliance. But anyway, what is it? Is that a real? Are there internal reasons for this, or is it just merely a marriage of convenience directed at the United States because both countries are unhappy in some ways with the United States? And there are ways to argue in favor of both explanations. Clearly, China and Russia have a generally shared view of the international order, which they think is unfairly rigged against them. They don't like the fact that the United States is running the world, so to speak. They don't like American so-called hegemony. And they are working hand in hand to try to undermine so-called American hegemony in every way that they can. Now, this was actually the case even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So indeed, if you go back to February 4th, 2022, i.e. something like 20 days before Russia actually invaded Ukraine. Putin was at that time in Beijing. He visited with Xi Jinping for the opening of the Beijing Olympics. And during that visit, they signed a document, which I think is one of the interesting foundational documents for understanding Sino-Russian relations today, the so-called Joint Declaration. Uh, between them. And if you read this joint declaration, you will see that they proclaim basically the founding principles for their relationship, which is opposition to American hegemony, uh, which is multipolar world, which is so-called democratization of international relations, by which Russia basically means, and China means, the reducing U.S. influence, and so on and so forth. And it's a very interesting document. One of the things that they say in this document is that Russia and China have long been democracies. They call themselves a thousand-year-old democracies. And you read something like this, you think, what is, you know, is that a joke of some kind? They, what they're trying to do there is they're trying to argue against American values, or even this notion that the West, and especially the United States, has any right to define what values should be, what in what democracy is, what human rights are. They're claiming uh, sovereign over those concepts like human rights and democracy. And so all of that was already in place. All of that was already there before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Has that changed with Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I would say that this tendency towards opposing the American hegemony and moving forward this their own ideas about about the world and how it should be run i think those tendencies were strengthened but they were not they have not been dramatically different right so that already was there before the invasion and those tendencies strengthened the invasion 
And finally, what other aspect? Maybe the military aspect of the relationship. And this is where people get confused because some people argue that Russia and China are, in fact, military allies. That's not correct. Uh, there's a big difference between Russia and China, let's say NATO military alliance. Why is that? Because NATO military alliance, well, has a number of aspects. For one thing, it has mutual assurances, i.e. Article 5. If, uh, let's say, a member of the alliance gets attacked, the others are supposed to come to that members help. If Russia and China are in this situation, they don't actually have a document that would mandate that the other comes to the help of the first, which is different, by the way, from the alliance they used to have in the 1950s. So the 1950 Sino-Soviet Treaty of Alliance did have a protection clause, i.e. that China and the Soviet Union at the time were supposed to help the other in case they were attacked by third party. And also there is no interoperability between Russia and China today. And not, it's not that there's entirely no interoperability and there's some similar systems, but generally speaking, are, there's no integrated command nothing like what we see in NATO, for example. Uh, so what Russia and China have been doing is they have been conducting joint exercises. They've been trying to build the confidence in each other's capabilities. They've been conducting things like joint patrols, maritime exercises from the East China Sea to even you know, the Indian Ocean and in the Mediterranean. They've been doing this sort of things. But that's more to try to learn a little bit more about each other and not so much to figure out how to operate together in theaters of war. So there's that aspect. In other words, Russia and China, they're not really military allies. They're in an alignment. But if, let's say, Russia goes to war, as it is, for example, in the currently waging war in Ukraine, that doesn't mean that China then jumps necessarily to its rescue. In fact, we've seen that China, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has been not entirely forthcoming as far as Russia is concerned with its with its offers of help. And let's say if China did something like invade Taiwan or something like that, then it's, it seems completely, you know, it's not to be foreseen that Russia will join the war on China's side, for example, or send forces to help China take Taiwan or something like that. That's also, I won't say it's out of the question because they are increasingly working together, but it seems very unlikely. All of which is to say Say is the Russian invasion of Ukraine has not dramatically altered the nature of the Sino-Russian relationship, which has been closing, which has been becoming closer and closer for other reasons for some years and even decades. And there are objective reasons for this uh, relationship becoming closer. This invasion has strengthened the tendencies in the relationship towards Russia and China getting even closer in economic terms, in political terms, and finally, in military terms. Recently, the EU unanimously agreed to open talks for Ukrainian membership, and the Secretary General of NATO has publicly announced that Ukraine will be considered for membership uh, in the near future. Does China share the same hostile view as Russia about Ukraine's membership in these organizations? I think so. Obviously, China's concern about NATO's enlargement is not as acute as Russia's. Um, Russia's complaints about NATO go back 
years and years and decades. They don't like NATO. They want NATO to fall apart. They have worked towards that, although many of Russia's actions actually end up strengthening NATO and the work towards the consolidation of NATO. If it wasn't for Russia's own aggressive actions in Europe, I think NATO by now would have probably fallen apart. Uh, but the Chinese, for the Chinese, there's no reason to love NATO. Why would they? And NATO is an alliance that they see as directed against not just Russia's, but China's interest in so far is that NATO is an alliance that helps perpetuate American so-called hegemony. So, and that is especially important in view of the fact that NATO has increasingly been willing to see China also for an adversary. Now, that has been a reluctant shift uh, that has been happening over the last few years irreluctant, not so much on the part of the United States, which has been very eagerly pushing for this, certainly since the Trump administration, but more reluctant on the part of the Europeans, who have been not very enthusiastic about shifting their, or broadening their security concerns from focusing just on Russia specifically, but also on China, which is far away as far as they are uh, concerned. But they have been more receptive, I think, recently to this notion that China is also a threat. And that is partly, I think, uh, a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because they see China as that important rear area for Russia. And to be fair, China has been providing some help to Russia, although perhaps not to the extent that the Russians have wanted. But in any case, uh, it has willingly or unwillingly has attached itself a little bit to the Russian motive here as far as the war in Ukraine is concerned. So that has also driven a sense of uh, driven reevaluation of, of China in uh, in the European assessment, right, on what NATO should be doing, etc. So with that, you know, the Chinese look at NATO and say, OK, what do we have uh, to gain from NATO's enlargement, nothing. It would, of course, it's detrimental to our security interests. If they, if NATO then becomes even more active in projecting power in the Pacific, well, that's even worse. And so, from that perspective, I think uh, it's it's not unreasonable. Uh, for the Chinese to be very unenthusiastic about NATO. Given China's ongoing attempts to communicate with Zelensky regarding peace and the recent EU-China summit in Beijing, what does China seek to gain by getting involved in European affairs? Oh, for China, okay, China is playing a fairly complicated game here. China's game is different from Russia's game. How is it different? Well, for, for China, Europe remains a very important partner. Economically, it is a very important partner. And it's also important for them politically to try to separate Europe from the United States. Uh, this is very much in line with the Chinese policy of differentiation. That's a longstanding uh, element of Chinese foreign policy, a differentiating between the main enemy and the running dogs of American imperialism or whatever is their main opponent. They used to pursue differentiation towards the USSR when the Soviet Union was their main enemy. They would differentiate between the USSR and Eastern European countries, which were Soviet satellites. So now they differentiate between the United States, which is seen as the main enemy, and the Europeans, which are seen as, yeah, basically 
contributing to the United States and helping the United States, but in many ways, they're not as bad as the United States, and it would serve China's interests to try to play them against one another. So they've been trying to do that, and the uh, summits with the Europeans really serve this purpose. The idea is to stress to the Europeans how reasonable the Chinese are and that it is unreasonable for the Europeans to rely too much on the United States and risk all the trade opportunities that they have with China, etc. And of course, for China, there's also the commercial interest because they do have a massive um, trade uh, turnover with the countries of European Union, in particular with Germany, uh, also France. So this is what the Chinese have been doing as far as the Europeans are concerned. And their position on Ukraine has been really a derivative from this or a function of this. I mean, the position in terms of the peace talks. Okay, China has been promoting peace talks. How successful has this been? What's the purpose of this? Uh, It hasn't been very successful. The purpose of the so-called Chinese peace plan that uh, China's representative Li Hui took around uh, some European capitals, but also to Kiev, to Zelensky, and also to Moscow, was to kind of show China as this um, important actor that has a peace plan. It's very unrealistic if you read this peace plan. It serves, its main purpose is to basically raise China's status as a responsible power or that likes to talk about peace. It's not, it doesn't have as its purpose to actually achieve peace because it's completely unrealistic if you read the provisions of it, right? So that is the purpose. Have they achieved this purpose? Well, I think, yes, they have. I, they've raised their profile that, yes, they're also interested in peace. Uh, the Europeans can be appeased and the Europeans can be told, look, you say that we're supporting Russia, but no, actually, we're supporting peace. Uh, the Ukrainians can be appeased to a certain extent, as in, look, you know, we're, we're here. And, you know, Ukrainians themselves have also been trying to reach out to China and have been trying to keep China on the sidelines, which, of course, for the Ukrainians is very, very important. And the Russians, you know, the Russians have, have been getting some stuff from China that they need. Uh, they have not been very happy with China's lack of support on some crucial issues. But by and large, what the Chinese are doing here is they don't want Russia to lose this war. because That would not be good for China. I think they understand that Russia loses the war in Ukraine, then they then China is next. You know, the pressure would pile on China. If you put yourself in Xi Jinping's shoes, you would say, do I want to have Russia lose in Ukraine? Why? Why? Of course. You don't want to do that. So you want Russia uh, to at least be able to keep what it already has in Ukraine. But also you don't want the conflict to escalate. I mean, the Chinese are very careful. They don't want this conflict that they see as a regional conflict in Eastern Europe uh, to become a, a global conflict, and never mind a nuclear war. So from that perspective, they are, and they have been willing to even exert some pressure on Russia. Uh, and maybe we can talk about it later. But uh they have they they've shown that they're not super interested in having this conflict go out of control. Are they then interested in Russia winning this war? Well, that's another question. I would argue that no, they're not interested in Russia winning this war uh, because that would make Russia overly arrogant and change the power relationship, the dynamic between Russia and China in the degree in the um, direction that that favors Russia a little bit more than it does now. And where China is happy is to have Russia where it is today, i.e. Russia that has burned its bridges to the West, that is increasingly reliant on China in every conceivable way. And that is, you know, that sort of uh, dependent Russia is in China's interest. 
objectively speaking. So that, you know, that is what they're, what, what they're happy about, as it were. And I think that's what their foreign policy efforts are directed towards. So going off that, do you foresee China's position on the Russian invasion evolving over time? And what factors could lead to such changes? No, I think their position has been fairly consistent. And this position is to see this conflict freeze, basically, because by having it freeze, China will have Russia where it wants it to be, i.e. in a position of dependence on China. It will also avoid an unnecessary escalation. Nobody wants to see global war over Ukraine. So from that perspective, the Chinese are in a fairly stable situation. You can see that from the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, the Chinese position on the conflict has really hardly changed at all. Can you imagine circumstances in which China would break with Russia over the invasion or over any other issue? Or is their strategic partnership unshakable? It's interesting to see how this relationship evolves in the future, because today Russia is increasingly dependent on China economically, but the Chinese are not really pushing their advantage to force Russia to do certain things that Russia would not want to do. What could change that? For example, China has a conflict, let's say, with India. Russia has a very good relationship with India. In those circumstances, let's say China wanted Russia to support China in the conflict between China and India. What would Russia do? And what would Russia be able to do given its dependence on China? You know, I don't know. That's a very uh, speculative theoretical question, which is very difficult to say. But it's a, you know, it's an untested area for the Sino-Russian relationship. We know today that China has considerable leverage. Will it be willing to use this leverage or not? I think there's actually, it's, it's very unlikely that China will want to push Russia too hard. Why is that? Because Russia is China's only real important partner out there. Who else is out there that can help China? What is it? North Korea, maybe? And North Korea doesn't really matter, does it? You know, is it Pakistan? Is it, is it Myanmar? No, Russia. Russia is an important strategic partner for China. That's not an exaggeration. And by pushing the envelope too far, by putting too much pressure on Russia, the Chinese would uh, jeopardize this relationship or risk to jeopardize it, which means that I mean, they understand that, right? They understand. And that's why they're so careful in not putting too much pressure uh, on on the Russians. What could change that? I don't know. Nuclear weapons, for example, could Putin use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Would the Chinese like that? The Chinese clearly would not like that. Would they do much about it? Unclear. Would the Chinese have the leverage to stop Russia from using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? I would argue probably not, actually. Probably not. If Putin wanted to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, will he go to Beijing and ask, oh, uh, Chairman uh, Xi, can I use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? And he's not going to do that. If he was going to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, he was going to, he would do it anyway for reasons of his own without looking at China necessarily. So China's leverage, I mean, we talk about China's leverage. Yes, it's got enormous economic leverage. If China, for 
example, imposed economic sanctions on, on Russia or something like that, I mean, Russian economy would be crippled. But will the Chinese do that? It's one of those things uh, that is, you know, it's leverage that is very hard to use in practical terms, right? The way the Chinese have been using this leverage is to get better terms, for example, for buying, you know, Russian oil and gas. Now, there they have been able to use their increasing economic leverage. But forcing Russia to make political decision that Putin does not want to make, I just don't see how I don't see how this is going to happen. But, you know, again, this is an untested territory and we'll we'll have to see in the future. I want to pick your brain a little bit more about the nuclear weapons issue. Russia does not have a no first use policy on nuclear weapons and... In 2020, Putin signed a memo which defined the two categories in which Russia would use weapons. First, if another country fires nuclear weapons at them. And second, if the Russian state is put at an existential threat by conventional military means. The fact that China has the no first use nuclear weapons policy, does that halt Russia's consideration of deploying nuclear weapons or maybe dissuade them from it? And do you foresee circumstances in which Russia would deploy nuclear weapons anyways? So I don't think that Russia's nuclear policy depends on China in any way. Some people argue that Russia has moderated its rhetoric with regard to Ukraine Uh, because Xi Jinping has voiced his displeasure at the prospect of Russia using nuclear weapons. I don't buy this argument. I think for Russia, using nuclear weapons in Ukraine would be an act of last, absolute last resort, absolute desperation of the kind that we have not yet seen in this war. I mean, Russia is not exactly losing the war. Uh, Arguably, it's actually doing pretty well in recent months, at least. So if it came however, to that moment of choosing whether to, let's say, lose Crimea or use nuclear weapons, would Putin turn to Xi Jinping and ask for his opinion? I don't think he would. I think that that would be sort of the last thing on his mind. In other words, Russia and the Russians like to emphasize that they maintain certain strategic independence in terms of using their making these decisions with regard to things like the use of uh, nuclear weapons. I think that's right. I think that's right. Under what circumstances would Putin use those weapons? You know, that is still, uh, that is something that a lot of people have been debating. We have the Russian uh, doctrine that you have alluded to. And in Ukraine, the big debate has been, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, for example, the territories that Russia annexed uh, automatically come under uh, that definition of sovereignty, which if violated could justify the use of nuclear weapons, i.e. would Russia use nuclear weapons to defend, let's say, the territory that it has annexed from Ukraine since 2022, or the territory that it has annexed since 2014, i.e., for example, Crimea, or just the territory that it had prior to uh, those annexations, so prior to 2014, i.e. Russian, actual proper Russian territory. You know, the answer is anybody's guess. If you were to ask for my guess here, I would say that Russia would 
it would be very, very unlikely to use nuclear weapons to to defend the territory that it has acquired or acquired, not acquired, annexed from Ukraine uh, since the invasion. And perhaps even the uh, annexed DNR and LNR regions, Donetsk and Luhansk. But it may be more inclined to do that in relation to Crimea. Why is that? You know, do I have any evidence for this? You know, my evidence is anybody, you know, is as good as the next guys, right? Uh, so we don't know because a lot of those decisions, they do not lend themselves to rational to rational explanation. So much depends on what's in Putin's head and how he feels at any particular moment and whether at the moment of his desperation or when he is worried about the regime survival, he might or may not do something like that. We just don't know, right? We can speculate about it, but it's very difficult to assign degrees of probability to this kind of uh, events. There's this debated idea out there that Russian military success or failure in Ukraine may inspire or dissuade China from pursuing military action to invade Taiwan. What is your take on that idea? And are the two situations comparable? So the two main schools of thought about this are that on the one hand, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and serve as encouragement to the Chinese, i.e., for example, if the Russians are successful in keeping parts of Ukraine, then the Chinese may think, oh, look at this, that actually worked. Uh, they are able to get away with this. So why don't we do something like this with regard to Taiwan? In this case, this can be you know, a form of encouragement for China. The argument runs something like this. Well, uh, Russia, after its invasion of Ukraine, found that actually invasion was a lot more difficult than they expected, and they there has been a huge pushback, including from the West in the form of economic sanctions, and this war has turned into quagmire. Therefore, the lesson for China is do not do stupid things like invade Taiwan. So, you know, those are obviously two completely opposite arguments. Um, and I don't know which side to take here. I would only just say, I think Rush Doshi wrote a fantastic book a couple of years ago called China's Long Game, I think that's what it's called, uh, is right that the Chinese look at foreign conflict and draw lessons from them. They drew a big lesson from the war in the Gulf in the 1990s when, in 1990, when the United States reversed Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait very rapidly. You know, Operation Desert Storm obviously led to the collapse of the Iraqi forces. The Chinese drew important lessons from this for their military reform and then invested very heavily in the military. And so what we can be sure about is the Chinese are carefully studying the current conflict, as, of course, are other great powers. And they're looking at this war and they are drawing conclusions what happens when a major military power like russia invades not a minor actor ukraine when you have engagement with modern forces on both sides you know what what kind of weapons work what kind of weapons don't work what strategies work what strategies don't work and they, i think the chinese are using the war in ukraine as an important case study for how the war over Taiwan might unfold. Of course, the situations are also very, very different as well, because obviously Taiwan is an island, whereas Ukraine is not. 
And so the kind of warfare would be very different. But I think some of the lessons still very much apply. So the Chinese are definitely watching this war and its lessons very, very carefully. To wrap up our episode and go back to the theme, what does China seek to gain or lose from Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, China has at the moment everything to gain. It has to gain in the sense of Russia becoming more dependent on China. Is that a gain for China? Yes. Russia has cut itself from the West. It burned the bridges uh, to the West. And, uh, and that is not a good thing for Russia. It's a good thing for China. Has Russia helped China in the sense of distracting attention of the West from China itself? Uh, the record is a little bit unclear on this. I would say probably, probably, because yes, the the more the United States is distracted, including in Ukraine, including in, you know, for example, in the Middle East or other theaters, the less the United States is then able to focus on the clear and present danger of China. Uh, Some analysts in the United States and Washington have been arguing precisely that point, saying that the United States has been too focused on Ukraine and should really focus much more on China and so on. So from that perspective, yes, that has been kind of a beneficial aspect. You know, this war has helped China distract, as it were, uh, the West's attention, in particular American attention from China itself. But there's a counter argument to this, which I also hear, I also understand. And that is that this invasion of Ukraine by Russia has become a real turning point, a point of no return for our departure from the post-Cold War to this brave new world of new divisions. And this has helped rally the West and give a new purpose to the West. It has helped strengthen NATO. It has helped bring new life into trans- into the transatlantic relationship, for better or worse so far. You know, so far for the better, it's been working quite well. Um, and all of that, is that good for China? Is that, you know, it, not necessarily. <laughs> As we've talked about now, increasingly, NATO is also talking about opposing China or seeing China as an adversary. That's partly a consequence of what we're seeing with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So all of which is to say that the, the picture is very unclear, as of course, uh, it always is. But I would say still that by and large, China has been a sadly beneficiary of this conflict of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, the losers have, of course, been Ukraine, which has been destroyed. Russia, which has isolated itself from the West and increasingly turned into an authoritarian state. Well, those are the losers. The Chinese, you know, the Chinese have, I think, have, have been have gained. Professor Radchenko, thank you for joining us. This has been very insightful. Thanks for having me on. For all of our listeners out there, Small World Big Problems is a student-led production sponsored by the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University's Paul H. Nitze School of Advanced International Studies, located in Washington, D.C. Small World Big Problems can be found on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to become part of the podcast, suggest a guest for the show, 
or just send us your feedback, please email us at sitestrategypodcasts at gmail.com. This episode was researched and produced by Benny Quartang and Addie Barginoli. I'm Connor Crago. We'll be back soon with a new episode. See you all soon.